0: From the Yale Broadcast Studio, this is
1: The Big Picture, with Bela Bez Bencrada.
0: Laura Alonso, welcome to the program.
1: Welcome to myself and to you. Thank you for having me.
0: It's great uh, to have you, uh, Laura. You are a 2021 World Fellow. Uh, You are the former head of uh, Argentina's anti-corruption office, a democracy activist, who made an interesting transition from civil society into elected office. Uh, Can you talk a little more about that?
1: It was an interesting moment in 2009. I have been working as a civil society activist in democracy and transparency and independence of the judiciary and rule of law and anti-corruption policies. But I felt that that was it. That my, you know, that I felt a bit limited uh, within the NGO sector. So there was a chance and I decided to run for office with a new party, a center-right party, like liberal-conservative Mm Non-populist. Let's call it this way. Non-populist. A liberal party. So, I ran. It was kind of a revolution. It's not usual that someone that is so entrenched in the NGO sector as, for my case, uh, public figure, executive director of the chapter of Transparency International, running for office. But I did. And I don't regret it. I think it was one of the most important and relevant decisions I made in my life. And I simply answered the question, like, why not me in Congress? Right,
0: right. You know. Yeah.
1: Usually it's the usual suspects. So the question is, like, I was in a very private moment asking myself, if these guys are sitting there, Mm -hmm. why not me?
0: Right. And how do you think back today uh, about the possibility for change, for affecting positive change uh, within the system, within uh, the system of an, uh, where, where you held elected office as opposed to outside the system in civil society?
1: Well, I think uh, there are different moments and situations for civil society and politics or Congress or elected office or appointed office, it depends on you first personally, but also in the uh, institutional development of the country. So at the moment I decided to run for office, Uh, things were getting worse for liberal democracy, and I I was spending much more of my time at the NGO as a fundraiser.
0: Right. not
1: as an activist. Ah, So, okay, and I I get your point. I am elected. I get into the system. I am an opposition member of Congress. But I started, I restarted my transparency agenda within the system. Mm -hmm. So then you start to document Mm -hmm. institutionally your participation within Congress. Right. And this is quite different from speaking with your documents and your website and your social media. You are in Congress. You have a voice. You have a microphone. Your ideas are there. They are there for the present but also for history. So historians will go there in 50 years and say, oh, Laura Alonso came from... Right. The, so, you know, even when I was recommending some friends to run My argument was, you are a well-known person. You are a citizen, an entrepreneur, social activist from outside. What you say is very nice. Your demands are very good. But if you are inside, especially in Congress, you will testify for those that don't have a voice and are outside the system. Mm. So it's different. Traditions are different. I was an outsider from politics, even from the rest of the members of Congress, but also from my fellow members in my party group. Mm -hmm. I was an outsider. But it took me six months. You have to pass some tests. You have to show that you can be articulate and give good speeches in the House and have good projects and organize good events with, you know, to discuss topics. As I was an opposition member, I never had any of my laws passed. But at the end, when we won the presidential election, all of the laws that I proposed in my first and half term were passed. That's amazing. So, you know, if you can keep the flame, but you set the tone... Someone can come after you and you can touch that person and say, look, don't do the work. Go to my files and you find the basics and you can grow from there.
0: So, so, uh, Laura, today we're going to be talking about a flame that uh, seems to be dwindling across the world. And that's the flame of democracy. Uh, the topic of our conversation is: Can democracy flourish in the twenty first century? Now, with your experience, both from the outside of the outside of the system and within elected office in a democratically elected office, let's start unpacking the crisis of democracy. What do you think are, and and this is a crisis that's, you know, empirically uncontested. We know that democracy is uh, in decline around the world. There is what uh, has been called the democratic recession. It's, it's, the number of democracies has significantly declined in the last 15 or so years. What do you think are the root causes for this, if it can be even said at this uh, broad level internationally?
1: Well, wow, that's a question. I think that one of the root causes, especially in stronger democracies, is that individuals detached from civic participation, especially in the U.S. Like if you came here 20 or 30 years ago, a common ordinary citizen was more involved in local, not politics, but local issues around uh, the councilman or councilwoman of his or her neighborhood And they were more involved in what was going on around their square meter. And I think that's one of the things that changed a lot. First is that the demographics of the U.S. are completely different in 30 years. Like, I came here for the first time to the U.S. many years ago, not to Miami. (laughs) And to the East Coast. And no one in the streets spoke Spanish. Mm -hmm. And now we see a lot of people speaking Spanish everywhere, voting, you know, having things to say in democracy, believing in democracy. People come to live in the U.S. because they believe in the U.S. idea that they will progress, that there is freedom, that there is democracy. So the idea, the dream of democracy is there. The flame is there in, in the heart of the people. So I think one of the root causes is some kind of um privatization of the individuals participation, like as citizens. We decided okay, maybe in the great democracies, you know, let's let's privatize our privatize our participation in politicians. They do the job. Of course they do the job badly because we are not uh holding them accountable every day in small things. It's, you know, you can discuss the bigger picture, but you also, your bigger picture can be the school in your neighborhood or the community service that you can uh, touch. So first, individuals, we need individuals to become active, civic citizens again. And I don't want someone from Kentucky necessarily discussing Washington or Ukraine because maybe he or she are more useful to be discussing democracy in their, you know, council. Mm. So that's one of the things. Second, polarization has always been there. This is my position. Lies have always been part of public debate. If you go to Hannah Arendt, you will find a book about lies in politics from the ancient times. So I think that there is a lot of despair and pessimism about democracy. But uh, after a counter wave, Samuel Huntington would say, we will have a new wave, the fourth wave of democracy. We are not clear if this is going to happen or not, but I am confident that. At some point, it will come and people will press on political systems. We haven't found yet a better system that guarantees rights, individual rights and freedoms for every person in different countries, cultures, societies, better than democracy. This is a unliberal democracy, okay? I want to stress liberal democracy
0: mm-hmm.
1: for individuals for communities and, you know, liberal democracy to guarantee your free speech, your free of choice, and to guarantee that the powerful, whoever they are, do not abuse their power against you. So this is why the liberal side of democracy needs to be... You know, I think that when we speak about flourishing democracy in 21st century... It's also about flourishing the liberal side
0: Mm -hmm. of democracy. The part of democracy that beyond the idea that uh, a majority rules, beyond that, that certain rights are guaranteed uh, irrespective of who is in power. Talk a little more about that, the liberal side of liberal democracy.
1: I think that this is important because... Especially in Latin America, 40 years ago, we've recovered democracies. People went and voted for elections periodically. In many countries, elections were free. But people like Hugo Chavez appeared in Venezuela Ooh. through elections.
0: Right.
1: And he kept winning elections And sometimes his elections were rigged or not, but he was there. And then he took over the judiciary. He took over the press. He started to restrict civic space. He detained people. He became an autocrat through elections. And this was not the first time in history. So the liberal, the republic, which were designed to protect... Citizens from autocrats, from abuse of power of rich groups, one-person regime. Um, this is why it's important to go back and think, okay, these are political parties. These were here for many years. They had a job to do. They are not doing this job very good, but they are still probably the best way to elect political candidates for Congress or for governments, they are the ones that must help these people accountable first, then the people, or first the people I don't know, then the law and the judiciary and other things. So, you know, s- the s- liberal side of democracy is so important. That's why I want to, you know, highlight this part because in Latin America you have democratic elections every two years but our democracies became less liberal and even illiberal in many countries and this is the risk for other countries so we need to keep the liberal side safe because if we lose the liberal side of democracy we are just, we will not have a democracy. We will have elections that are rigged with no, competi- with no competitors and at the end, that's not real democracy. It's just electing authorities that are there forever.
0: So if I can summarize, initially you mentioned that participation is crucial and that participation does not necessarily have to be the same for everybody. It can be at a more local level. It can be tailored to the specific uh, needs of, of that individual citizen. Um, And then I think you're describing a broader trend where the uh, liberal values are increasingly under attack and forces uh, around the world are promoting increasingly a kind of politics that rejects those fundamental values that we embrace and seek to strengthen around the world. That makes me wonder, Laura, what are you know, maybe taking these two kind of pillars you identified that, uh, uh, um, you know, the, the pillars of this crisis, if you will, um, what are some ways we can um, strengthen citizens participation in a practical way? And let's, let's talk, you know, just generally about different parts of the world, you know, th- there is this country, which we all care about. And yet there are other contexts where democracy is increasingly under attack. And participation, despite the promise of the internet, is not actually materializing the way uh, what we all imagined at uh, at a time of great optimism, maybe 10, 15 years ago, when initially social media came up. So what does participation look like? Let's start with that. And then we'll talk about uh, liberal values and what, what one can do against uh, to, to guard against those attacks.
1: So I think that there are some formal ways of which are more complicated because when you try to put these formal um, institutions for civic participation on, there is a lot of politics and people saying yes, others saying no, and at the end it's a struggle and no one, you know, nothing happens. But I still think that we can mock some kind of uh, civic participation, formal institutions like referendums or citizen assemblies, in civil society without uh, any intervention from the formal political system. If we have the formal political system calling for a citizen assembly to think about the reform of the electoral law, I don't know, in Connecticut, let's say, well, that's great.
0: Let, let's, Laura, very briefly, can you yeah. describe what a citizen assembly is just for people who are listening and don't know?
1: So citizen assemblies as a method to uh, pick Citizens that create some kind of microcosmos of the society they are embedded in. So maybe this is 100 people, 150 people that you put together uh, every Sunday for four months to discuss uh, political reform. That is a difficult political reform, maybe electoral reform, and come up with agreements around what reform they have been. Discussing. And this is ordinary citizens. They don't know anything about the technicalities of electoral politics or electoral systems, but they just learn through the process about this. And they learn through each other what agreements they can make together and come up with a result. I think that the most important, interesting part of citizen assembly is not only the methodology and how you pick all these people to in a way mock the society they are representing, but also that they have to come with a they have to come out with a result after the process. And this is a problem with usual politics, is that it's very difficult for politicians like me to uh, come up with the results because the next election is there. Right. So everybody's thinking about, okay, So, citizen assemblies, we can also look at technological instruments that we can use to, uh, you know, find agreements around issues in some communities or topics and show them to uh, Congress, for example. In in the case of Argentina, there has been a long-time campaign now to—this was done in Brazil before—to reform electoral law and— ban those pre candidates that are prosecuted for corruption cases to get into the candidacies for Congress. And this is taking years, but you know, in the, for example, in the UK, they have been, there is a group or some groups, they have been campaigning to close the House of Lords for more than 100 years. But they are there. Mm.
0: So, You know, what I find so fascinating about citizen assemblies is that the the ideas and proposals that citizens come up with at the end of such citizens' assemblies actually differ significantly from their initial ideas before they have an opportunity to deliberate in these really well-structured settings. Um, And yet... I see a major challenge in the fact, and you you alluded to this, Laura, Mm -hmm. the fact that the incentive structures of representative democracy actually do not align with expanding uh, uh, this field of citizen assemblies, giving greater power to randomly selected citizens. It fundamentally contradicts the idea of representative democracy where politicians are incentivized to stay in power and be reelected. How do we bridge that gap?
1: So I think that's—and it's a very good point that you have made. I'm not eluding it. The problem is that in some new democracies, maybe let's say that Latin America has new democracies— some of them have become very illiberal. Some of them have become autocracies. So speaking about citizens' assembly, citizens' assemblies is very complicated in a formal way. But I get the point that someone from Congress or executives, some, some political leadership or social leadership needs to or must try to uh, create this social civic experiences just to show, look, this, no, this is not only campaigning. This is the people of, I don't know, an Argentine province discussing for four months why we want citizen juries for juvenile Criminal cases. And this has been the evolution of the conversation, which is different than debate. Mm. This has been the evolution of the conversation, and this is the result. Mm. And the result is not yes, no. The result probably is a good piece of knowledge about why or why not we want this and the characteristics of the policy that we recommend to the legislature to discuss.
0: Yes, a, a consultative kind so, of role.
1: Yeah, so picking what you said before Congress state legislatures they have their own incentives and you are you are true they are far from what people or citizens would like legislatures to be discussing about. So this is a double effort.
0: It has to work in tandem. I think so. Yeah.
1: Because I come back to my first idea about civic participation. We stopped talking about how important is civic participation and how important is human connection. We need to face each other. Yeah to have a conversation about things. And this is, okay, I, I love virtual conversations, but then you shut down the computer and that's it. You don't go for a coffee together. You don't um, have a conversation about your differences that can become commonalities. So human connection is super important for democracy.
0: Yes, and and that is i think that explains a lot of the power of citizen assemblies because when people actually are there face to face uh and they meet as as parents as brothers as sisters as uh, you know soccer moms as uh, you know you name it it ha- there's there's something humanizing about facing people you you believe you are actually in in a kind of uh, irreversible conflict with um, and I think that explains a lot. Of, of you know, I, I actually attended one of these. Um, Jim Fishkin from Stanford does uh, together with Larry Diamond, who you know because you yes. you too were a Stanford um, a Draper Hills fellow like me. I saw that. Um, so so Larry Diamond and and Jim Fishkin had an experiment in 2019 called American One Room, and I was there in Texas, and it was truly. Um, Really, really interesting to see how this super diverse group of Americans um, was able to talk about some of the most contentious issues in a way that, you know, especially like if you look at the me- media discourse, it's extreme. The tone is very uh, polarized and uh, intense and vitriolic. You'd had none of that in the face to face kind of experience. I think, though, you know, one thing, Laura, I want to ask you about. I had a thought about this that kind of adds more complication to the very idea of promoting citizen assemblies, which is the depolarizing effect of these, uh, um, of these uh, gatherings and experiments. It almost always leads to results that the far fringes of the political spectrum don't want to see. They don't want to see moderation. The whole political project, especially on the far right, uh, is about you know, doubling down on, on polarization and uh, vilifying the other side. If, if there is this tool that leads to kind of more moderation, more consensus building, it, it looks to me like it just doesn't fit into their political project. And we are bound to fight resistance from the extreme left and the extreme right uh, when it comes to such uh, citizen assemblies,
1: of course you will find the resistance, but democracies are not for weak citizens. Uh, you know, when I got into Congress, it was fu- it, it was hard. It was hard to give to give my first speeches because I knew they were listening and i think that's when you try to gather these experiences like american one room what you show is that people can chat about their differences and after chatting about the differences they can go together to a park and have some beers right even in american congress because humans are humans always so I agree with you that there is a lot of polarized discourse and speech everywhere, social media, traditional media, even when you see what's going on in Congress. I was telling you the other day in our panel that it was so different, the experience when I was in Congress. Every time we, ha- we had a committee session and the cameras were there, there was more aggression amongst representatives, and when there were no cameras, we were able to speak freely about what we really wanted to achieve. Right. Maybe it was one, you know, one, one thing in the, in the order list. But it was one thing. So going back, citizens assembly, I think it's a good idea to give new energy to civic participation in issues that matter. Right. So if you know, I can imagine and I'm going you know, you sold me American one room very well, I will go to to see what what is this about. I would bet on that. I would bet on on this as a way to start involving people that are not usually connected to politics because they are fed up of polarization and aggression and they don't want to be part of that, but they are interested to make things work.
0: I'm curious to hear, Laura, your thoughts on the media side of things before we wrap up. So um, it's clear that uh, the media, broadcast media, print media even, but certainly digital media, play a a role in the climate we are finding ourselves in, the political climate. The assault on liberal values, it seems to me, has been supercharged by some of the changes in the media environment that we see. So what role do you think uh, media play in in this uh, crisis of liberal democracy?
1: We still need to defend the freedom of the press, And media in general, they are having their own crisis with all the, you you know, new technologies. And so that's not part of our conversation. But I think that we also need to see from the civil society how we can help and demand for a better quality political debate on the media. It's not that, you know, if we all turn off TV today in the U.S., what would happen? like for one hour. We don't watch any TV show for one hour. Like how many million people would do that? Probably a lot. So people are con- some people are still consuming traditional media. Other people are consuming other media we don't know, with no checks, with a lot of lies, misinformation, disinformation. So again, I think it's how we can help millions that feel the same that it's even myself. I'm a politician. And I have decided to go to the shows on TV that I really feel comfortable to watch. So I don't care what they ask. But I feel comfortable because I can have a conversation. But there are other shows where are full of lies or aggression that I don't watch, so I don't go as a politician. I imagined, you know... If I have this feeling of disappointments, but at the same time I think this is so important that we need to make this work, maybe we need to create some kind of social commitment, protest, demanding something on media. Uh,
0: But you don't think it's something where regulation is the primary tool?
1: The problem of regulation when you speak about freedom of speech is that it can go very wrong. It's like we were discussing also during this weekend of the World Fellows reunion about books and cancelling books and right. cancelling authors. Oh, my God. This it's a is slippery slope. Hilarious. Yes. So, you know, we were also discussing about how to separate some—of course, art is political, but we have to separate artists from the products. And if we like art— And then at the end, we learned that the person was awful. Well, I don't know, separate the person from the arts. Because if we start attacking opinions, free press, you know, regulation is very difficult. This is what, we need some, we always need to regulate things, but we need to be very careful when regulating opinions. Because I see Venezuela, I see Russia, I see some countries where I don't like what's going on. You know, China, state-owned media, and you can own Internet-owned media, so you can only know what's going on through that Internet, which is Chinese state's Internet. So I prefer the turmoil of lies because under freedom I can say this is a lie. Right. If we are under autocracies or dictatorships, we cannot say safely this is a lie.
0: Right. I completely agree with you. Uh, regulation is, is, it always is a, almost always it, it represents a failure of uh, improving uh, communication um, without regulating it. I think that should, should really be our goal. I do believe, though, that especially in the realm of digital media – um the algorithms that underpin some of the social media that increasingly shape our views and I should mention you are a very prolific uh, user of, of social media uh, I will, uh, you have some 350,000 followers on Twitter and anybody who would like to find you there you are you are laurita Alonso, l a u r i t a l o n s o on, um, on Twitter. Um, it seems to me that the, that the large social media platforms are at least part of uh, the, the decline in civility of our conversations, and here I do believe it's worth looking in more detail at the algorithms and their incentives uh, and, and how they maximize profit, in my view, at the expense of uh, the health of our conversations.
1: I think, yes, you're right. This is new, so probably it needs some, you know, all the discussions in U.S. Congress or in Europe about some regulation on social media. Yes, of course, because TV and radio were regulated at some point when they emerged. So uh, it's part of the process. Uh, As a liberal, usually I think that things will go fine with no regulation, but you need some. What I'm saying is, okay, be, be aware that if we go too far, this can create uh, negative results for free, free speech, which is not the—this has to be the limit. Yeah. So I understand this is all new algorithms and, you know, artificial intelligence and how they know a lot of things about our personal lives, and this is not good. There are also some positive sides about how we can detect um, misinformation campaigns, lies. Also, how much uh, protests can be exposed from uh, autocratic countries or theocratic countries, such as Iran this past week or Cuba last year. So, you know, it's always about the balance. And I think that balance comes from debate. It's not that you have the complete proper answer or I have it. It's that maybe debating the positions we can find a good solution together. And in a way going back to congress. This is what congress is about. Uh, congress is in general and keeping up, you know, you know we all know that in these discussions there are a lot of interests around. And I need that we have to think how to create a golden share for citizens in these discussions. So that's why maybe a citizen assembly about social media could be nice. Could be nice. It could be nice. It it could give Congress a good resource for debates.
0: Before we wrap up, Laura, what makes you hopeful? about democracy in the 21st century?
1: Human beings, believe it or not. I believe in human beings, creativity, innovation, bravery, Uh, the look for freedom and happiness forever, forever, you know, it's like from the ancient times when you go to history, history does not repeat, but it gives you a lot of hope for the future.
0: Laura, thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful speaking to you. Thank Thank you. you. Today's episode of The Big Picture was produced by Wisal Zibda and Ryan McAvoy. It was made possible with the support of the Yale World Fellows program at the Jackson School of Global Affairs. Our theme music was composed by Ravi Krishnaswamy at Copilot Music. For updates on future episodes, you can follow me on Twitter by searching for Belabes. Thank you so much for tuning in.